On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On today's episode, we're going to dig into the internet's first serial killer. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. John Edward Robinson is born on December 27, 1943, in Cicero, Illinois. John is the third of five kids belonging to Henry and Alberta. When John is 12, with his father's encouragement, he joins the Boy Scouts. By 1957, he's an Eagle Scout and is chosen as the sole American representative to lead 120 Boy Scouts at the Royal Command Performance in London in front of Queen Elizabeth II. John goes on to attend a private boys' school for those interested in the priesthood called Quigley Preparatory Seminary, but after a single year, he drops out. It seems he has some disciplinary issues going on. In 1961, he starts attending Morton Junior College in Cicero. He's studying to be an x-ray tech, but after two years of attending, he drops out. Then 1964 rolls along and he marries Nancy Jo Lynch. In 1965, their first child, John Jr., is born. And then John and Nancy have twins, Christopher and Christine. So far, other than the inability to remain in school, things are pretty normal. But let me tell you what's not normal. John Robinson isn't normal. And he's on the path to become a serial killer. One who is sometimes referred to as the Internet's first serial killer. Not a title to be proud of. Before Robinson became a serial killer, he had other issues with the law. In 1969, Robinson was arrested for embezzling over hundred grand from Fountain Plaza X-ray Laboratory. In August, he was found guilty of embezzling $33,000 from Dr. Wallace Graham in Kansas City. Turns out Robinson got the job using fake credentials as an X-ray technician. Robinson gets a suspended sentence and three years of probation for the crime. But rather than be happy with the probation, Robinson goes and violates it by moving back to Chicago without either the permission or knowledge of his probation officer. While in Chicago, he gets a job at R.B. Jones Company as an insurance salesman, and in 1971, he is awarded Employee of the Century. Actually, in 71, he gets arrested again for embezzlement. It seems Robinson just can't figure out that embezzling is frowned upon by law enforcement. Back in Kansas City, he is sentenced and his probation period is extended. Then in 1975, he goes and gets himself charged with security and mail fraud connected with a phone medical consulting company he made up. And he gets more probation. Seems like he is getting some pretty friendly judges or something. Lots of probation and no jail time. Now, for a couple of years, it seems that John Robinson has stepped up and made a useful member of society out of himself. He's a Sunday school teacher, a scoutmaster, baseball coach, and an all-around nice guy and community-centered family man. In 1977, Robinson somehow cons his way onto the board of directors for a local charitable organization. And some letters from this organization find their way to the mayor of Kansas City, and other local leaders. These letters praise John Robinson and extol the virtues of his volunteer efforts. These letters will eventually end up with John Robinson being named Man of the Year at a big old lunch that was thrown in his honor. 
He basically tricked State Senator Mary Gant into presenting him with a plaque. The Kansas City Star runs a story about the luncheon, but it seems the paper is getting quite a few unhappy responses about it. So the Star sends out reporter Mac Edwards to do a little digging. You can imagine what Mac Edwards found, and in embarrassment, the Star ran another story which exposed Robinson and his criminal history. 1979 rolls around, and probation for Robinson comes to an end. But in December of 1980, Robinson is fired from his job as employee relation manager at Guy's Foods in Liberty, Missouri. The following June, Robinson is charged with felony theft. He is ordered to pay Guy's Foods 50 grand. Robinson pled guilty to stealing a $6,000 check. He was looking at a seven-year sentence, but he made a deal and got 60 days in jail with five years of probation. He served those 60 days between May and July of 1982. Robinson forms a phony hydroponics business and basically swindles a friend out of $25,000. This friend had a wife who was dying, and this friend was hoping to make a fast return on his investment so he could cover his ailing wife's medical and health care costs. Doesn't appear that Robinson cared about just how rotten it was to swindle a man who was trying to take care of a dying spouse. Around the same time, John Robinson started propositioning his neighbor's wives and ends up getting into a fist fight with one of the lady's husbands. Robinson also joined a club, a secret club, or more of a secret sadomasochism cult, the name of this club was the International Council of Masters, and Mr. Robinson ended up becoming the slave master, whose responsibilities included luring victims to their little get-togethers to be raped and tortured by other members. You would think that Robinson would be too busy being slave master and arranging these little events for his club to have time for any more swindling, but you would be wrong. In 1984, he has created two shell companies, he fraudulently hired 19-year-old Paula Godfrey to work as a sales rep. Paula told her family and friends that her new boss was going to send her to San Antonio to get some training. On September 1st of 84, Robinson shows up at the Godfrey house to pick Paula up. And then there is silence from Paula. After four days, Paula's father, Bill, flies to San Antonio, where he finds that Paula never booked into the hotel where she was supposed to be. Bill flies back and confronts Robinson at his office and tells Robinson he better hear from his daughter in the next three days. Two days later, a handwritten note shows up with a Kansas postmark. The letter is supposedly from Paula and simply says she's safe. Bill doesn't believe it's from his daughter Paula, so he takes it to the police. Another handwritten letter shows up, but this time it's addressed to the Overland Park Police Department. It's from Paula, and it basically says that she is thankful for the job Robinson gave her, that she is okay, and that she doesn't want to see her family anymore. At that point, without further ado, the investigation is dropped. It's dropped because Paula is legally an adult, and the police really don't have any kind of evidence to suggest wrongdoing. Her family, however, does not believe for one minute that those letters are really from Paula. And you know what? No trace of Paula Godfrey has ever been found. 1985 rolls around, and in January, Robinson, using the name of John Osborne, meets Lisa Stasi, who has a four-month-old daughter named Tiffany. He meets Lisa at a shelter for battered women in Kansas City called Hope House. Her social worker, Kathy Stockpole, 
tells Lisa that a charity organization wants to help her by offering her a job that includes an apartment in Chicago and daycare for little Tiffany. Lisa goes to her sister-in-law, Kathy Klingensmith's house, until the charity group can pick her up. Robinson, under the guise of John Osborne, arrives and whisks Lisa and Tiffany away. Before she leaves, Lisa promises to return soon to get the rest of her stuff. For a few days, Lisa stays at the Overland Park Roadway Inn. She is asked to sign several sheets of blank stationery, which it appears Robinson told her would be so he could send occasional updates to her family when she was out on jobs. On January 10th, Lisa, Robinson, and the baby check out of the hotel. Robinson calls his brother and sister-in-law, who have been trying to adopt a baby but aren't having any luck. Robinson tells them that he happens to know of a baby who was left orphan when the baby's mother committed suicide. Robinson says if they will fork over $5,500 to cover attorney's fees, he can get them the baby they so desperately want. Don and Helen Robinson are delighted and cough up the cash and end up with the beautiful baby girl. Along with the baby, they get a set of adoption papers that are signed by two lawyers and a judge. All are forged, of course, and I'm sure you realize that the baby is Tiffany. On January 13th, the social worker, Kathy Stockpole, gets a typed letter from Lisa dated January 10th, thanking her for her help. Lisa's mother-in-law, Betty Stasi, gets a similar letter, but Betty knows that Lisa does not know how to type. Shortly after that, Robinson calls, remember they think he's Osborne, asking if anyone has heard from Lisa. He claims she disappeared from the inn and he doesn't know where she is. Robinson's probation officer, Steve Hames, is suspicious of Robinson's business dealing and starts investigating. So this next part covers the shenanigans that Robinson was up to. A lot of this is from Murderpedia, some of it is verbatim, and some is me paraphrasing. Irv Blattner, an assistant and fellow parolee of Robinson's, walks into the Secret Service office in Kansas City on March 19th. He offers to turn government witness into Robinson's various activities. The previous week, the Secret Service had questioned Robinson about a check which had been illegally cashed by a friend of Robinson's. The check was meant for a student named James Hargrove. Blattner believed that Robinson was trying to set him up to be the fall guy. Special Agent John Gerber and asked Blattner about any involvement Robinson had in an organization that assisted young women with babies. Blattner tells the agent of a plan to help pregnant women give birth, then put the babies up for adoption. Blattner refused to be involved with this scheme. At the end of the interview, Blattner signs a statement giving details of Robinson's illegal activities, and on March 21st at 11.55 a.m., Robinson is arrested. He will post a $50,000 bond and be released from custody. The FBI were involved in the investigation into Robinson, and they were interviewing women at the outreach program. Agent Levin had gained evidence that a building used by Robinson's Equitu business was being used as a brothel. March 26, Robinson and his attorney, Bruce Hudak, present at a parole violation meeting held at Missouri State Probation Office. Robinson had to answer counts of parole violation of forgery, that was illegally cashing the check, and consorting with someone with a criminal record, that was Irv Blattner. Robinson denied both charges, claiming it was Blattner who was responsible for the check and also that he was unaware that Blattner was on probation. If you remember me saying Blattner was afraid that Robinson was going to turn him into a fall guy, which sounds like that is exactly what he was trying to do. Needless to say, Steve Hames is frustrated that it is proving so difficult to pin Robinson down with any crime. 
The FBI continued to keep Robinson's business at Troost Avenue under surveillance. On June 12th, while Robinson was away, they moved in. In the apartments, they found Teresa Williams. She thanked them for saving her from Robinson. Teresa began to relate her story to the agents. Befriended by Robinson in April 1985, Robinson led Teresa into prostitution. She also agreed to allow Robinson to become her pimp. As the relationship continued, Robinson began to assault Teresa regularly and soon was able to persuade her into a plot to frame Irv Blattner. Robinson instructed Teresa to write a diary with dialogue that he gave her. This diary was to culminate in her apparent murder by Irv Blattner on June 15th. Robinson told Teresa that she would actually be going to the Bahamas. While the FBI were able to take Teresa away from Robinson, probably saving her life, they did not make any move on Robinson himself. For three weeks following Teresa's apparent disappearance from Troost Avenue, with the aid of the FBI, Robinson employed a private investigator, Charles Lane, to search for Teresa. On July 10, 1985, she was found. Robinson instructed Charles to monitor the house where she was living to find out the cause of her walking away. However, Charles Lane, the private investigator, was interviewed by the FBI and Teresa was again moved, this time well away from Robinson. On July 29, 1985, Robinson returned to the courthouse in Clay County to find that he was guilty of breaking the conditions of his parole on three counts. On August 21st, Judge Hutcherson ordered that Robinson's probation be revoked, thereby forcing Robinson to serve the remainder of his seven-year sentence behind bars. An appeal was lodged which allowed Robinson to remain on bail, was $250,000, during the appeal process. In May 1986, at the appeal hearing, Robinson came away with a satisfactory conclusion. The decision was overturned. This allowed Robinson to stay out of jail, albeit on parole but it didn't last. In January 1986, while on bail pending his appeal hearing, Robinson was in court defending a charge of felony theft. Robinson's company, Equa2, had been commissioned by Backcare Systems International to market their range of products. The plan included publishing brochures to advertise the company. Backcare Systems International became suspicious that the requested work was not being carried out. Robinson forced Irv Blattner to forge invoices, but the trick failed, landing Robinson in court. The three-day trial ended on January 30th of 86 and resulted in Robinson being found guilty of felony theft to the tune of $3,600. The district attorney for Johnson County, Steve Obermeyer, observed Robinson's criminal past and persuaded the judge to take it into account when sentencing. Judge Herbert Walton agreed with the DA and sentenced Robinson to 5 to 14 years in addition to a fine of $5,000. Defense lawyers tried to appeal the decision, but they were denied. On July 10th, Robinson was charged again, this time on four counts of attempted fraud on a business deal with Ger Gerhard Kuti. Sorry, I just mutilated that name. Gerhard Kuti. Robinson offered Gerhard part ownership on a land agreement, to which he paid Robinson $150,000 for the opportunity. He later discovered that Robinson had fraudulently modified the sales agreement to read $100,000 and pocketed the remaining fifty dollars What a lot of shady shit Robinson is up to. That's me, not Murderpedia. So, even with all of these additional charges, Robinson is not in custody and is still doing his thing. 
In January of 1987, he meets 27-year-old Catherine Clampett. She leaves her child in Wichita Falls, Texas with her parents and moves to Kansas City looking for a job. Catherine meets and is hired by Robinson, who promises her a job that will involve lots of traveling, and as a bonus, she'll get a new wardrobe. By June of that year, Catherine has vanished into thin air, just like Paula and Lisa. A missing persons case is opened, Robinson is questioned, but with no solid evidence, there is no case brought against him. Now, from 1987 to 1993, Robinson isn't conning, frauding, stealing, or disappearing anyone. Maybe he's gone and turned over a new leaf. Or maybe it's because he is in prison. From 1987 to 1991, he was incarcerated in Kansas for several fraud convictions. And then from 91 to 93, he was in prison in Missouri for another fraud conviction along with parole violations. While in Western Missouri Correctional Facility, he meets and bamboozles 49-year-old Beverly Bonner, who worked as the prison librarian. Turns out he also knew Beverly from like 20 years earlier. After Robinson's release, Beverly leaves her husband for Robinson and goes to Kansas City to work for him. Beverly is alive and well for a while, at least until Robinson arranges for Beverly's alimony checks to get forwarded to a Kansas City P.O. box. After that, silence from Beverly. For a few years after her silence, Beverly's mom continued to forward the alimony checks and Robinson kept right on cashing them. Now that we're in the 90s, there's this little thing called the internet, and Robinson is busy roaming around on it. He's using the name Slave Master, big surprise, not super creative, and he's out in the ether looking for women who want to be submissive in a sexual relationship. The first victim he finds is 45-year-old Sheila Faith, who has a 15-year-old daughter named Debbie. Sheila meets Robinson on the internet in 1994. She's been having a bit of a rough time since her husband died in 1991. Her daughter Debbie is confined to a wheelchair due to spina bifida, and as you can probably imagine, it is hard and financially straining to deal with supporting her daughter, and Sheila has to pay for the therapy Debbie needs. Here is this nice man who appears to be wealthy and who is offering to support Sheila and to pay for that therapy. Robinson gives Sheila a job along with these promises, and then Robinson shows up to help Sheila and Debbie move from Fullerton, California to Kansas City. Immediately. And I mean immediately. They vanish. Not too long after Sheila and Debbie left for Kansas, Sheila's brother, William Howell, gets the first of several letters, typed letters, signed by Sheila. These letters tell him all about the wonderful time she is having. But her brother isn't really falling for it. William contacts the Social Security office and asks them to track down his missing sister and niece using the Social Security checks that Sheila receives for Debbie. The administrator, however, refuses to divulge that kind of information. In the fall of 1994, the Social Security's administration gets a typed letter signed by a Dr. William Bonner letting them know that Debbie is now completely disabled. And you know what this means? This means the amount of money sent to Sheila will be increased. For the next seven years, those checks are cashed. Over time, Robinson becomes a popular figure in the BDSM online chat rooms. In 1999, he approaches 20-year-old Isabella Lewicka, a Polish immigrant who came to the U.S. in November of 93. Robinson offers her a job and a bondage relationship. Isabella moves from Indiana to Kansas City. 
When she gets there, Robinson gives her an engagement ring and takes her to go pay for a marriage license, which they never come back and pick up. There's a big problem with this, of course, because Robinson is already married. Isabella, it appears, believes they are married or just likes to say it because she tells her parents that she is, though she doesn't tell them her new husband's name, which is weird. Also weird. Isabella signed a slave contract containing 115 different things that Robinson would have control over, including her bank accounts. Isabella often likes to go to Robert Meyer's bookstore in Overland Park, so much so that she's considered a regular, and she'd often talk to the owner, Robert, about the books she was buying. July 18th of 1999, Isabella makes one of her visits to the bookstore, and this time she has Robinson with her and she introduces him as her husband. When the two are about to leave, Isabella mentions to Robert that she's going to be moving away. That is the last time Robert will see her. Isabella's parents get some typed letters where Isabella tells them all about her world travels. I read in one place that Robinson's explanation for her not being around anymore is that she'd been caught smoking weed and had been deported because of it. Not unlike other serial killers, Robinson is getting sloppier over time, and by 1999, he has attracted the attention of Kansas and Missouri authorities. The reason? His name keeps popping up in connection with missing women. Suzette Troughton is a licensed practical nurse who's been involved with the BDSM scene for a few years. She's been a slave to several masters, and she uses the internet to find those masters. In 1999, Suzette meets a man in an internet chat room whose screen name is J.R. He describes himself as a wealthy businessman from Kansas City. After a few months of talking via email, J.R. makes Suzette a job offer. She will be a nurse to his diabetic father while the three of them go on a trip around the world. Suzette, while tempted, decides it would be better if she spent some time in Kansas and got to know both J.R. and his father before making a final decision. And she does just that. In October, Suzette and JR meet. JR, aka John Robinson, has talked some acquaintances into pretending to be various members of his family. At the end of the five day visit, Suzette agrees to take the job, and on February 14th, 2002, she moves to Kansas. For two weeks, Suzette rents an apartment using Robinson's credit card. Robinson pops by and tells her he has some business to wrap up before she can start on her new career. The two of them have sex regularly and take photographs, which Suzette sends via email to her friend Crystal Ferguson. The emails change, though, after March 1st, which also happens to be when Suzette sort of disappears. In the emails after that date, Suzette never talks about things that happened in the past or about people she used to know. All she talks about is how happy her boss and slave master make her and how good her life is. Also weird is that all of those emails are signed Suze, which isn't a nickname she has ever used. Crystal keeps on getting emails from Suze and her friends suggest that because JR is such a great master, she wants Crystal to have the same kind of relationship. Crystal thinks this is super shady and begins to suspect that she isn't actually corresponding with Suzette. In an attempt to discover the real writer of the emails, Crystal decides she'll go ahead and play the game. Pretty soon, JT, who presents himself as a stern but fair master, contacts her, and Crystal notices right away that the email style of JT is very much like the emails from the person calling themselves Suze. After a few weeks, JT starts calling Crystal, and at the same time, a new person begins emailing her, 
This man says his name is Tom, and he is offering to be Crystal's master. Tom gives a few different phone numbers to Crystal, and Crystal, who appears to be smart and not easily fooled, gives those numbers to a friend of hers who happens to be a police officer. The numbers are traced, and every single one of them points to John Robinson. Suzette's mother, Carolyn, receives some typed letters that are supposedly sent to her from abroad where the couple are traveling, but all of the letters have Kansas City postmarks on them. Another thing that Suzette's mom finds odd are that the letters have no mistakes, which apparently isn't like Suzette. Spelling is not her thing. Something else odd is that Suzette did misspell one thing, one of her dog's names. At the end of March, Robinson calls the Troughton house and talks to Carolyn. He starts bitching that Suzette has disappointed him. He claims she stole money from him and then ran off with another man and that he hasn't seen her since. Carolyn's other daughter, Dawn, doesn't believe any of it, so she calls the Overland police and tells them what she's heard. That's when she finds out Robinson is already under investigation. Robinson appears to be clueless that he is under investigation because he keeps using his different personas to keep up the emails with Crystal. He's trying really hard to convince her to come visit him in Kansas. On March 29th, Detective Jack Boyer of the Lenoxa Police Department contacts Crystal. Boyer explains that he is part of a task force investigating the disappearance of Suzette. She mentions the emails she's getting from Suze and also about JT, JR, and Tom. She tells him she suspects they are all Robinson. Detective Boyer tends to agree with the suspicion and asks Crystal to keep doing the emails, but to give him copies. Crystal agrees to do just that. Robinson is known for staying at the Extended America Hotel in Kansas, and he was staying there for a few days in March with an unnamed woman. During that particular stay, the woman is only seen one time, and that is to ask for photocopies of a document. The desk clerk gets a look at the paper and is mortified to see that it is a slave contract. Now, by Kansas law, the hotels are required to provide a list of long-stay guests to the police. The hotel notifies police and tells them about the document. A detective instructs them that if Robinson should come back, they are to notify the police immediately. During their search for Suzette Troughton, detectives find out that she and Robinson stayed at the Guesthouse Motel in February. In the room, they do some forensic tests and find bloodstains in that room, but unfortunately, they are not able to determine the source. Meanwhile, back at the Extended Stay America, a woman from Dallas checks in. This woman's stay is paid for by none other than John Robinson, who joins her on April 23rd. At the time, the FBI are staking out the hotel, gathering evidence to use against Robinson. Five days later, Robinson demands his slave go back to Dallas and get things ready to move to Kansas. Robinson is going to help her make the move, but he never shows up. She tries to get a hold of him, but is unable. She wants to get a hold of him because he's taken some photos of her in various bondage scenarios, and she wants those pictures back. When she can't get a hold of Robinson, she instead contacts police. Two officers from Lenaxa interview her after they are contacted by police officers in Dallas. After they hear this woman's story, the Lenaxa detectives call the FBI, and this is when the detectives learn for the first time that the FBI has a file on Robinson, and it includes suspicion, prostitution, and white slavery. On May 19, 2000, a complaint is filed against Robinson by another unnamed slave. She was staying in room 120, the same room he used before at the Extended Stay Hotel. This woman tells detectives that during her stay with Robinson, he repeatedly 
ignored the safe mark, which I'm guessing is similar to a safe word. But in the case, uh, in this case, a line that isn't supposed to be crossed. Robinson had beaten her and taken photographs, just like he'd allegedly done to other women. When this woman complained to Robinson, he'd up and just taken off. The task force and the FBI both interview the women to get more info on Robinson. At this point, the task force decides that John Robinson is just too damn dangerous and it is time to arrest him and get him off the street. DA Paul Morris approves an arrest warrant and on June 2nd, 2000 at 10.15 a.m., John Robinson is arrested at a farm he owns in Kansas. His wife Nancy will be brought in for questioning, but it's clear pretty quickly she doesn't know anything. So the task force is searching around the farm and with the help of cadaver dogs find five metal drums. Inside one of them, they find a naked and blindfolded woman lying face down in the fetal position. Another drum contains a second decomposing body. During that same weekend, search warrants are obtained to look at two storage lockers in Raymore, Kansas that are rented by John Robinson. On Monday, June 5th, they find three barrels. They are marked with the words, rendered pork fat. Kevin Weiner, one of the Kansas City PD crime lab techs, opens the first one and finds some things. One of those things is a shoe. When they pick the shoe up to remove it from the barrel, there is a leg attached to it. The barrels are immediately closed back up and they are sent to Dr. Thomas Young in Jackson County for autopsy. That afternoon, John Robinson makes his first appearance after the discovery of the drums on his property. His bond is raised to $5 million because remember, the initial arrest was for sexual assault. Multiple murders is going to require a lot more bail. At a press conference that same afternoon, DA Chris Coster announces that each of the three barrels found in the storage garage have a female body in them. By Wednesday morning, they identify one of them as Suzette Troughton, who has been missing since March 1st. On June 12th, they identify Beverly Bonner. The next day, on the 13th, Robinson is charged with five counts of first-degree murder for all of the bodies found, both in Kansas and Missouri. The death penalty is going to be the goal by both states. In Johnson County District Court, Kansas, Robinson is formally charged with the two counts of murder for Suzette Troughton and Isabella Lewicka, as well as kidnapping in Suzette's case. In Cass County, he is charged with the murders of Beverly Bonner and the two remaining as yet unidentified bodies in the storage unit. In late June, those two bodies are identified as Sheila Faith and her disabled daughter, Debbie, by way of dental records. Five bodies have been found, and all five of them had been killed by one or two blows to the head. In 2002, Robinson is given the death penalty in Kansas for the murders of Suzette Troughton and Isabella Lewicka. He receives life in prison for Stasi, but this is because she'd been killed prior to the state of Kansas reinstating the death penalty. Now, Robinson is also facing charges in Missouri, where prosecutors are pursuing additional murder charges based on evidence found in that state. Robinson's attorneys do not want him to be extradited because Missouri has a far more aggressive stance on capital punishment than Kansas. Chris Kloster, the Missouri prosecutor, insisted that if there was to be any kind of plea deal, Robinson needed to lead them to the bodies of Lisa Stasi, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. Robinson knew that meant he would be admitting to these other murders, so he refused to make the deal. Coster was under a lot of pressure to make some kind of deal, 
because he didn't really have an airtight case. One of the reasons was there wasn't solid evidence that any of the murders were actually committed within Coster's jurisdiction. And while they knew Robinson was connected to all of the women, they didn't have a smoking gun, so to speak, to tie him to the murders. It boiled down to a carefully crafted plea that in October of 2003 had Robinson basically acknowledging that Coster had the evidence needed to convict him of capital murder for Godfrey Clampett and Bonner and both Sheila and Debbie Fate. The statement was in a way a guilty plea and the Missouri court accepted it like it was, but it also didn't show or indicate any remorse on Robinson's part or acceptance of his responsibility for the murders. In 2005, Nancy Jo Robinson filed for divorce from John after 41 years. The reason she cited was incompatibility and irreconcilable differences. I would say the fact that the man you were married to was killing women on a regular basis is certainly irreconcilable. In 2006, Lisa Stasi's daughter Tiffany, who had been called Heather Robinson after the adoption, filed a civil suit against Truman Medical Center in Kansas City and a social worker. Heather says that the social worker told Robinson about Stasi and her newborn baby in 1984 after Robinson told the social worker that he was looking for women or his home for unwed mothers, which of course did not exist. 2007, Heather Robinson and the hospital came to a settlement for an undisclosed amount of money. There have been a few books written about Robinson's crimes and Annie did an episode on him on cold case files. There was a lot of information on the trial, but I summarized it in this episode without getting too bogged down with all of the details. And I want to end by saying this. If BDSM is your thing and it's consensual, you have at it. But when I look at pictures of John Robinson, I can't for the life of me see what anyone saw in him as just a boyfriend, let alone one that is going to Fifty Shades of Grey you. While you ponder your thoughts on the first internet serial killer, go ahead and follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Crime Biscuit or shoot me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. The internet has been around for a long time now, and I think we all know that it can hide a lot of secrets. If for some reason you either haven't figured that out or don't believe it, I suggest for your own sake, you go back to landlines and pagers. You'll live longer. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.